Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. Not just, you know, greasy fries and a terrible cheeseburger. We're talking about, you know, places that have ahi tuna and, and you know, not just a Bud Light or a, or a Molson. You know, this is a real nice $8 craft beer and they're paying for it. Who's swapping out greasy fries for ahi tuna? Bowling alleys. Lanes around the country are getting a glow up. But will it be a strike with all of us? Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. Put up your hand if you remember Twinkle Toes Flintstone, Bedrock's best bowler. The Flintstones aired from 1960 to 1966, the golden age of bowling. The sport's popularity has faded ever since, but now a British company wants to rekindle past glory by snapping up Canadian lanes. Also today, Brian Mulroney's signature economic policy, free trade. Canada's ridden that wave for decades. But in a world that's turning more protectionist, what now? Up first, in the cat and mouse game between online scammers and all of us, we may need to level up because the scammers are getting sneakier. We're old hands at online shopping. You go to a company website, couple clicks, bing, bang, boom, and Anissa Dari. Like magic, the exact thing you want shows up on your doorstep the next day. That's what Riza Backus was hoping for last spring. He was shopping around for the one thing everyone in Calgary has to have. A cowboy hat. Well, yeah, of course. So Riza started looking online. And I came across this StetsonHatCanada.com website. And the price was, uh, first of all, lower than... Any other prices that I'd I'd found, um, it was in stock. Uh, that my size was in stock, so I just clicked and uh, purchased it. Easy. Riza thought he'd made a great find. The site was selling Stetson hats for less than usual. They normally cost hundreds of dollars, and they can be tricky to get, especially in Calgary. This is a uh, Smith-built hat town. Huh, Stetson. I mean. Does he say yee-haw instead of yahoo, like he's some sort of Texan as well? <laughs> I, oh, okay, no, but I digress. Did his hat at least come in time for Stampede? It did not. A month later, he still had no hat, so he reached out to the folks at Stetson. I got a disappointing but a friendly email um, from Mary at Customer Support, and uh, she said, the Stetson website we only have worldwide is for the U.S., Europe, Australia, and Japan. 
kind of left out a key country there, didn't he? Yeah. Um, neither Riza nor Mary from customer service seemed to mention Canada there. The real Stetson Hat Company's website doesn't ship to Canada. The website Riza found was a total fake. I just felt like a complete <clears throat> moron. And um, and then I told my wife the bad news. And uh, I knew that she was going to be upset for my reckless online purchases. And I uh, just took it. I should point out, his wife is actually our colleague at The Cost of Living, Danielle Nerman. Let it not be said that I don't love Danielle Nerman. But I feel like she might not be especially generous <laughs> about this. It's got, it's got a tough L for Riza. How much did he spend on the hat? About 100 bucks Canadian. Now, because he'd paid with his credit card, he was able to get this money back. But it wasn't easy. And not just because um, certain producers were upset with him. He had to file a fraud claim and he had to send in documentation. The whole process took a couple of months. And then, as he mentioned... This whole thing was kind of embarrassing for him, right? He's a pretty tech-savvy guy. And the website looked legit. Yeah, it was pretty snazzy-looking, so to speak. It didn't have ugly graphics. It didn't have anything that set off alarm bells. You know, the only thing was that the prices were a bit lower, but they weren't so low that he thought something was wrong. Okay, well, these kinds of copycat websites, how big of a problem are they? It's really hard to say... With a number, authorities release very general information about fraud in Canada. So what we can say is that Canadians lose hundreds of millions of dollars every year to fraud. This kind of copycat scam, though, is a growing problem. They're seeing it a lot in the travel industry and not just websites. Chad Andre is with the travel agency Flight Center. He says people will search for his company online and... There's plenty of toll-free numbers on, on listed on Google right now that are listed as Flight Center in the proper spelling, Flight Center ER, Flight Center Canadian, Flight Center Canada, like all kinds of variations, Flight Center Surrey, Flight Center Scarborough. They're new listings and they continue to pop up continually. So you're just Google Flight Center, you find one, you pick it, it looks good, you call the number and you know what happens then? Somebody does answer right away and they pretend to be from Flight Center. They'll pretend to book your flight, and they'll take your not-pretend-real credit card information. Chad Andre has actually called these numbers himself. We found that we we end up in a couple of different call centers, and the second that you press for sort of identification or try to identify where they are, who they are, they hang up the phone, get all, you know, flustered and and disconnect the call. So if you kind of feel like anything's fishy, you, you know, try to figure out if they're legit, they just hang up. Yeah, and a lot of people don't press them on this, right? They just assume it's real. I talked to a man who found out he was scammed only after he went to a real flight center office in person. He had already spent $2,300 over the phone to buy tickets to Brazil. And when he went to get his tickets, he learned they didn't exist. I mean, 2300 bucks. Like, come on. Did he get his money back? No. He bought them on a debit card, so there wasn't any insurance or fraud protection there. The folks at Flight Center in person did help him to rebook a new flight, but he was out the original money. But this whole thing is just stressful. It's worrisome. It's just a pain all the way around. Yeah, and it takes a lot of time and effort on the part of the business to stamp out these copycat websites too. So it's a constant endeavor. Uh, you know, our legal team from multiple angles has been involved um, to, to work with Google and to send cease and desist letters where there's been points of contact where we've been able to deliver those types of vehicles. Uh, so it's, you know, it's an all hands on board experience. It's kind of like whack-a-mole, right? You knock one down, a couple more pop up later. 
Is there anything for it? Unfortunately, for both businesses and for consumers, you kind of have to look out for yourself. You need to be really sure of what you're looking at online. Watch for spelling mistakes in the name of the website. Check for typos. Is the website using a zero instead of an O in its name? That might be a sign that something's up. The zero instead of the O, that is sneaky. Mm -hmm. You can really see how someone could get God. I mean, like Ariza, what did he do after? Did he report it? I mean, who do you even talk to? Is it the police? Yeah, that is who you can go to or the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. But reporting all of this after the fact isn't going to get your money back. Neither of the fraud victims I talked with reported anything to the cops. Anti-fraud experts like Melanie Anderson with the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity says that's a problem. The more things get reported, the easier it is to track them down and to track the culprits down so they can't hurt the next person. If you think you are, um, you have been scammed or you're on a malicious website to report that to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. These types of services, every time that somebody reports, whether it's an email as spam, a text message as spam, or a malicious website, that gets fed back into these protective services to ensure that people are operating safely online. Her department actually has a website, Get Cyber Safe. It has a whole section just for spotting fake online stores. What about the fake Stetson site, you know, the one that got Ariza? Is it still around? No, StetsonHatsCanada.com is uh, no longer with us. (laughs) But Ariza did eventually get his money back, you said, at least from this credit card company. What about his hat? (laughs) He does have a hat now. He had to fly to Vancouver to buy it in person. Well, of course, one of those iconic Vancouver Stetsons. (laughs) I mean, at least he's all cowboyed up now. Thanks, Nice. You are welcome. This is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haberschrud. The 1960s was the golden age of bowling. Thousands of new lanes opened every year. And share prices of bowling companies? They went bonkers. It's when the dude fell in love with the game. Eventually, he'd roll his way into the semis. By the 70s, bowling's popularity started to ebb. And it's kept fading. Our producer Daniel Nerman finds a British company now wants to bring back the glory days. But can it rule a strike on Canadian lanes? Kathy Wrights has been bowling three times in the last month, so I'm pretty sure she's going to cream me. I guess we'll see how much you actually suck, because I think even someone who's bowled for a long time, it's a level playing field. That's what Kathy loves about bowling. Anyone can do it. Her friends, her kids, grandma, grandpa, and... Bowling is really still affordable. You can do a family of four for still under $100. Whereas a few hours at the ski hill, you're probably over $300, $400. You're picking a heavy object and chucking it down a lane and knocking things over. What's not to like? Stephen Burns is the CEO of the Hollywood Bowl Group, the largest bowling operator in the UK. 
Two years ago, it started buying up old bowling alleys across Canada and fixing them up for a new generation. Not hardcore league players, but people who may have tried it once or twice. In, in the UK, 98.6% of people have bowled at some point in their lives. Um, in, in Canada, from the customer research that we did, it was actually closer to 100%. It's something that everybody has done. Stephen Burns says after the pandemic, everyone was itching to get out. We're now spending less on stuff and more on fun. But... They don't want to go somewhere where it's a dark, dingy feet sticking to the carpets and and an outdated experience. They want new arcade games, online booking systems, and better food. Not just, you know, greasy fries and a terrible cheeseburger. We're talking about, you know, places that have ahi tuna. Bill Snowberger is with U.S. Bowling. He says the sport is having a moment. His company renovates alleys all over the U.S. and Canada, and business has been good. We normally have slow seasons, you know, where November, December, January, and February, that's kind of our slow time where we can catch our breath, replenish our inventory, give our installers some time off. Hasn't happened in in two years. It's year-round for us right now. While many bullying centers are getting a facelift, many have also just disappeared. In the last 20 years, Canada has lost more than 200 bowling alleys. A lot of owners retired and sold the land to developers. But the Hollywood Bowl Group is hoping to slow that trend. Next month, it will open its 12th location in Canada with plans to build and reno at least 20 more over the next decade. And that's A-OK with Kathy Wrights. I've been to some of the oldest bowling alleys that have never really been um, cleaned up, and I've been to some of the newer ones, and what an experience having those nice computers. Um, I've learned how to tally on a piece of paper but if I don't have to do that anymore that's that's so great what's not so great my score (laughs) well yeah maybe we need to just strengthen up your arms a little bit uh oh for the cost of living I'm Danielle Gutterball Nerman I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. On your Radio and by podcast, this is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haberschrut. In 1984, Brian Mulroney won the biggest majority government in Canadian history. He spent the next nine years as prime minister before resigning in 1993. For the economy, those were some pivotal years. The fall of the Berlin Wall, 
Reaganomics, the rise of globalization. Mulroney, who just passed away, ran point for Canada through it all. How is what happened then still being felt today? Sean Spear is a senior fellow at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs. He also served as a senior economic advisor to former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Hello. Paul, thanks for having me on the program. Well, thanks for being here. So, Sean, Brian Mulroney came to power in 1984. Can you remind us what the economic situation was like for Canada at that time? Yeah, we were going through a major economic transition, Paul, both in terms of of specific economic outcomes. It's a period, of course, of of high inflation, of slow growth, um, uh, growing protectionism in the United States. Um, but it's also a period of intellectual transition. You know, one one way to think about it is from about the end of World War II until about the the 1970s, we had a policymaking paradigm that saw an active role for the government in um, managing the business cycle and uh, producing economic and social outcomes that were seen as uh, egalitarian and ultimately good for the country. That model, whatever one describes it, um, sometimes people call it the mixed economy model. Sometimes they call it Keynesianism, you know, named after the, the British economist John Maynard Keynes. It starts to malfunction in about the middle of the 1970s. We see the rise of inflation um, and growing economic stagnation, what became known as stagflation. And um, out of that comes, you know, what you might describe as a sort of free market revolution. Margaret Thatcher, of course, is elected in Britain in the 19 in 1979 with a policy agenda about free market reform. Um, The next year, Ronald Reagan becomes the president of the United States with a kind of similar vision about a much more constrained, limited role for the state in the economy and society. Uh, And those ideas start to find expression in Canada. As you say, we're coming out of the 70s, we're coming out of recession, we're coming out of stagflation. How did Mulroney do with the hand he was dealt? Well, it's a great question. Um, it's hard to um, overstate how ambitious Mr. Mulroney's uh, economic policy agenda was. Uh, you know, just looking back at how frenetic um, his his policy reforms were, we see a major program of privatization. We see massive tax reform. You know, just to put this in some perspective for for listeners, the Mulroney era tax reforms, uh, Paul take the number of personal income tax brackets from 11 to 3. Of course, it involves the creation of the, at the time, highly unpopular GST. And then, of course, his signature economic policy, uh, free trade first with the United States, a a, a policy that Canada hadn't um, pursued really since almost the 19th century. Uh, And then, of course, ultimately extending it to North America. So, the Mulroney government uh, has to be understood as a highly ambitious sort of reformist government um, that fundamentally changes the relationship between the government and the and the market, the government and the economy. And, uh, you know, I think they have to be understood as a key catalyst for the um, the significant economic growth and prosperity that we experienced uh, through the, the 1990s and into the early years of this century. 
Well, then when you look at uh, what happened in the economy through the 90s and then even in the ensuing decades, how much of Canada's economy today has been shaped by free trade? I think it's hard to overstate um, the significance. It really has had a kind of transformational effect on Canadian trade patterns, on Canada's broader participation in the global economy, and even on Canada's identity as a, as a North American nation. You know, I mentioned earlier that um, that the 1988 election has really fought not just merely on the economics of free trade, but of course on the, the kind of identity in questions in, in, in inherent to the idea that Canada, a smaller country, uh, would enter into a, um, such a comprehensive free trade agreement with a larger country. And, and John Turner, of course, famously warned uh, that it, it wouldn't just have negative economic effects, that it would come uh, at the expense of Canadian uh, cultural identity and ultimately its political sovereignty. And I, I think in hindsight, those alarms um, have not manifested themselves. So you're saying, you know, on net, free trade has been a win for this country. But at the time, of course, it was hugely controversial. You mentioned, you know, John Turner and some of the alarm bells he was ringing, whether they manifested th themselves or not. Um, through the 90s, though, it, w it wasn't a win for everybody. I mean, who were the groups that were pushing back and, and who were the groups that ultimately suffered from this? I think the way I would answer that, Paul, is um, the free trade agreement with the United States has to be understood is, is I think, actually, uh, in historical hindsight, as a major step in the broader movement towards globalization. In fact, one might argue that um, that Canada and the U.S. are the, are key catalysts in 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 the the trend towards the liberalization of trade uh, to barriers to to goods and services crossing global borders to capital and even people. Um, and yes, of course, there's been some jobs destroyed as a result of of Canada U.S. free trade, um, but there's been other jobs created. I think on 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 net, um, both countries have done reasonably well. But I, I think what you're getting at is the kind of broader forces of globalization, which um, have produced uh, uh, concentrated challenges for parts of, of the Canadian economy. There, you know, there's really good research, for instance, on um, the, the negative employment effects of growing Chinese import penetration uh, to, to the country. And so in that sense, if uh, Mr. Mulroney uh, and his his peers and Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher represented this free market revolution that has contributed to uh, the economic globalization that really marked uh, the 1990s and the first decade or so of the, the 21st century. I think in a way, um, the past several years, really since at least 2016, have to be understood as a kind of collective effort to correct some of the excesses of the forces that they unleashed. And now we see a world that is becoming uh, more protectionist and, and potentially much more protectionist, depending how on how various elections go um, around the world and, and to the south. I mean, what are the risks here for our country? Yeah, you know, it's, it's so fascinating. Um, it, you know, we talked earlier, Paul, about the, um, the conditions that led to Mr. Mulroney's election in 1984 and the set of policy reforms that he enacted, um, you know, uh, they, I must say that they broadly resemble some of the conditions we find ourselves in today. Uh, uh, high inflation, uh, economic stagnation, trade protectionism, um, growing kind of tensions 
around the world. Um, and so in that sense, as we face, you know, broadly similar conditions today, I think there is an onus on our political class to resist the temptation towards short-termism and try to cast ahead the kind of long-term politics that Mr. Mulroney personified. And I must say that um, current Prime Minister Trudeau's own father personified through much of the 1970s and early 1980s. Um, if Canada is going to come out of the this period of of uncertainty that you talked about, I think it's going to require that kind of political leadership and the capacity uh, to build a, a kind of multipartisan consensus around a set of of um, basic policy precepts. Well, if you think about some of the policy changes that he brought in, and then as you say, were were, were continued by uh, by Kretchen and, and Martin and subsequent governments. Yes, there's the policy part of that, but the way that they were realized, as you've been talking about, was because Mulroney had a certain amount of leadership. Relationships were important to him. He had a certain amount of charisma, at least to some people. Some people yeah. didn't think so, but some people considered him very charismatic. And it was that charisma and those relationships with people like you know Ronald Reagan that that helped him achieve some of these kinds of things, especially when you think about our bilateral relationship with the U.S. Uh, Sean, is that a thing of the past? Or, or do you think there's a chance that Canada and the U.S. could have that kind of relationship again? I, I think that will be tough to, to replicate for, for, for a few different reasons. The first, of course, um, is, the, is the kind of political dysfunction in Washington. Um, you know, it's just hard to imagine uh, Canadian prime minister and Canadian issues looming as large today as they they did then the second though um uh relates to 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 canada itself i mean one of the reasons uh canadian issues loom less large is because canada hasn't kept up with the sort of investments um that would make the country useful and relevant uh to an american administration um brian marooney didn't have a good relationship with ron ring merely because they were friends and brian marooney saying when Irish eyes are smiling, it's because Canada had the resources and the capacity to play a key role around the world, uh, advancing you know shared interests with the United States. Today, um, that's much more challenging for various reasons. This is not a criticism of the current government. I mean, successive governments have kind of underinvested in those capacities, and that sort of left Canada um, less relevant to the American administration. So, in some ways, when we when we we look ahead and ask ourselves, how can we restore um, the, the the type of of bilateral relationship between Canada and the U.S. that we saw under the Maroonie era? Some of that uh, involves issues for which we ourselves can't resolve, namely, um, you know, what's going on in Washington. But some of it we can resolve. You know, um, a, a, the United States takes interest and takes note of uh, of partners who have the capacity to make a contribution. And um, that's something, again, collectively, all our party leaders should be committed to investing in because uh, it, it's ultimately in the interest of our country. Sean Spear, thanks for all that. Uh, it was a pleasure joining you. Thanks for having me, Paul. That's all for this week. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene. 
with help from Caroline the Fighting Alligator Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Habertrude. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.